1: The Finding Holy Podcast is where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. And you'll get to hear everyone's laundry routines. To listen to the Finding Holy Podcast, go to aahales.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Hey, everybody. We are excited to announce the winner of our latest book giveaway this week we're giving away a book written by bb warfield titled savior of the world we do these book giveaways from time to time all you have to do to enter is to share our podcast on your social media platform of choice and a winner is picked at random instagram username Swellborn music is the winner for this book giveaway we will be in contact with you to get that mailed over to you If you're curious about other books from past leaders in the church, we recommend you check out the Banner of Truth website. It's a great place to find books of this type.
1: This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to
0: Revived Thoughts. We remember that Paul, with a clear sense of all the unnaturalness of a separation of the soul from the body, yet wished rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. He declared to depart and be with Christ, to be far better. Every episode, we bring
2: you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. Today's episode comes to us from B.B. Warfield. It was preached in January of 1892, after the death of a beloved professor.
1: Joel, we have covered B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, before on our show. It was actually one of our very early sermons, but it was the example of the Incarnation. In it, we tell this powerful story of his relationship with his ill wife. Uh, Their relationship and his devotion to her caused him to spend 10 years or so on Princeton's campus without leaving. Uh, He lived out that example of Christ loving his church by his devotion and his servant heart toward this ill wife.
2: Yeah, he really does have a, kind of a crazy story, a crazy uh, adventure with his time with his wife there. As a quick refresher here, put 30 seconds on the clock, right? I'm going to run through uh, just a quick recap of his history here. Born in Kentucky, America, right? 1851, his parents took his faith very seriously, forcing him to memorize all types of scriptures and catechisms. His mother had always dreamed of having her son preach the gospel and side note timer to stop the timer pause on the timer, pause on the timer this is yet again uh, another instance of a mother in the 1800s praying for her son to be in ministry which I, i we've seen so many examples now on our research that we do for this show it's really kind of mind opening it's, it's really actually kind been boggling. convicting me like if you would right. asked me would reading old sermons of the past make me want to talk
1: to my wife about we need to consecrate some of our kids and pray for them to go into the mission field and yes and no i wouldn't have just just a number of mothers who seem to have been pivotal and sending those kids back out and i in praying for them from just such an early age i go yeah we I think we as parents need to be thinking about that.
2: There's definitely a very different mindset they had back then that we really don't have in modern day America. Clock's back on. Clock's back on. (laughs) He went to Princeton Theological Seminary. He also spent two years studying theology abroad in Europe. And it was there in Europe studying theology that he felt a call to be a minister of God's word. When he came back, he eventually would end up teaching as a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary.
1: He was a fighter for biblical inerrancy—the idea that the original autographs, the original manuscripts that were written by the apostles' hands or the prophets' hands, were uh, inspired by God with no human errors. He fought against the slow creep of human liberalism at Princeton, and one of his students and colleagues, a eventual professor himself, J. Gresham Machen, would say he found that he had uh, Warfield had the finest mind he'd ever known. As we've looked at the stories of Princeton, we've known how Machen kind of continued the work of Warfield, but then. He would eventually leave princeton and found westminster theological seminary because shortly after warfield's death princeton pretty much gives up that fight for biblical inerrancy and all the things that they were fighting for during that time now, if you've listened to our first episode of Warfield and you, you, in this now this one, you may get this wrong impression because he just kind of comes off as a fighter. He's known for writing. He's known for books and articles and reviews and criticisms and that his pen almost never came off paper. And, he, and you start to think, okay, this guy is just a debater with a bad attitude and he's ready to go at anybody who comes at him. This is true that he's a fighter for truth, but I don't think that the impression we're giving gives the full story, and so we wanted to flesh out a little bit more of the human side of him as
2: well today. Yeah, he definitely has a side of him that likes to fight, likes like for lack of a better term, he likes to he likes that conflict in lots of instances. That was very much a part of who he was. He was once passing the wife of princeton's president and she knew that there was a big debate going on later that day and she said to him i'm praying that there will not be a fight today at the assembly and he responded well actually i'm praying that there will be a little bit a little bit attitude in him <laughs> he was happy to get along but as long as it didn't mean compromising with with truth you know he that was that was the thing he's very focused on not pivoting or lessening that focus on truth people also seem to like him like it was it was if you were friends with bb warfield you were pretty cool like that was a good thing to have in your friendship circle and his wife as well they were both very social and would love to go out and meet people and talk with people Uh, that makes her debilitating illness all the more tragic uh, as a quick recap they were out in a storm one night and w- we don't actually know that history doesn't have a defined answer what happened to his wife whether she was struck by lightning or whether there was some type of psychological break during this this terrible thunderstorm, um, but it left her, for lack of a better term, debilitated. She, yeah. she wasn't able to leave the house um, and was essentially bedridden for uh, almost over a decade.
1: Now, Warfield had people he disagreed with theologically on issues, but he would maintain close friendships with some of them, too. Every day around noon, him and Geherdis Voss would go on a walk around the campus with, with Geherdes' dog. When Voss's daughter got sick... Warfield went hunting and caught many quail to give them to him because he said they were easy to digest and the protein was good for the daughter. Uh, he was also pro integration of the races. He fought against those who did not want to accept the abolition of slavery and he had wanted to allow the school to integrate and bring people of all different races together. He wrote and fought proudly for the idea that all were made equal in God's sight. And he went on even to say that it was the duty of Christians to do the best they could to give education, charity, and any kind
2: of help to others so that they could have everything they needed. Needed to move forward he was loved and admired by all of his students his lectures and sermons and notes showed a man who was always thinking of ways to better the lives of his students and push them to godliness in a small example of this but it says a lot about him and his wife. They had a list of all of the birthdays of any students that they had while they were there at Princeton and they never failed to wish one a happy birthday. And this is pre-Facebook era, right? Before, before. You can just poke or send them on the wall, right? Right, right. (laughs) Before they told you whose birthday it was, they kept a collection of all these birthdays. I mean,
1: I've had great professors, but I don't think any of them had ever wished me a happy birthday with a birthday card. So I think that that was one of the most touching parts of his story. Oh, "Oh, that's
0: so cool.
2: (laughs) He also cared deeply for children, despite having no children himself. He wrote a few books on the preciousness of infants, children, and young adults. One of these books that he wrote was an answer to another book that came out around this time that kind of championed this idea that children should never be asked to repent because it breaks their innocence. Warfield hated this idea. It bothered him so much that he felt he had to write his own book, to kind of stop parents from raising their kids in this way. Repentance is good for children.
1: As a teacher, he was unique. He had a southern accent and would lead his students in conversations. He was famous for quizzing students by asking them a series of questions in front of the whole class, which I know there are some people in the audience who probably absolutely hate that. As a former teacher, that was actually kind of what I like to do, but I know people who don't like speaking in public are just probably, that would have been the worst to them. Uh, Students were scared of him a little bit because of just his vast knowledge and that huge collection of published books that he had. One student who would actually argue with him sometimes um, eventually would become a leader of the fundamentalist movement of the Presbyterian church, but he got his start. Like he became famous for being one of the few students that was courageous enough to debate Warfield. to put it another way, this guy's career was started and born just by having the guts to challenge his professor on something because no one else ever wanted to because Warfield was so sharp and so smart on every subject and he wasn't mean he just always had a lot more knowledge than the others around him a teacher that was well respected and admired uh, even his enemies when he died said that a good man was lost that day he would challenge his students to grow and care for them very deeply in this sermon he talks about a christian's attitude toward death and you can see his warm desire to comfort those students as he recounts the loss of their professor and of course his friend
0: We make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1-10 Nowhere more fully than in the opening chapters of the second epistle to the Corinthians does Paul describe the trials and distresses of the life that he was living as an ambassador of Christ. He had been lately thrown to the beasts at Ephesus. He had escaped almost miraculously with his life. While recovering from the deadly injuries he received, the news reached him of the threatening defection of the churches of Galatia. And there was the danger of the things happening in Corinth, which only added to his mental and his physical distress. For the good of his children in the Lord, he controlled the expressions of his sorrows. He sent to each of these churches a letter of admonition and instruction, and only in Galatians did he venture to the pathetic appeal which consisted in calling their attention to the large, misshapen, and painfully formed letters in which he alone could now scrawl the accustomed line or two which he added with his own hand at the end of his letters. Meanwhile, things came again to a climax at Ephesus. Under the leadership of one Demetrius, The craftsmen who made profit out of the service of Diana raised a riot against the apostles' preaching. And assembling in the theater, all with one voice in the space of two hours, they cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Not the first instance in history, and not likely to be the last, when volume and repetition of sound are made to do the job of logical arguments. Warned by all of this that the public in Ephesus was no longer in a condition to profit by his preaching, Paul departed for Macedonia, apparently before the time appointed for the return of the messengers from Corinth, so that he might meet them on the road. But Titus does not come even to Troas. Now, torn with anxiety, the apostle pushes on into Macedonia. There, at length, his returning messengers meet him, and better than that, bring him good news. The Corinthians accept his authority and have humbled themselves to his rebukes. And that beloved church, at least, has ridden safely over the crest of the wave that threatened to submerge it. The burdened heart of the apostle overflows, and he writes to the Corinthians out of his very soul, For once we get to see his heart and learn how the stupendous trials which pressed upon him affected his thought and feelings." Amidst all these sufferings, which we have only briefly touched on, he is upheld by his sense of the greatness of his work and of the greatness of his hope. Though his outward man is being literally worn down, he will not back down. For his inward man is being renewed day by day. And through all this affliction, terrible as it is, but it is light compared with the eternal weight of glory, which it is working for him. His courage draws its force from his confidence in his future reward. It is because he looks not at the things that are seen, which are temporary, but at those that are not seen, which are eternal. And because of this, he can bear all things. Like Moses, he looks to the payment of the future reward and endures on the hope of seeing the invisible one. Like Abraham, he is content to dwell in tents for a season. Because he looks for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. It is indeed with just this last figure that the apostle expresses his feelings here. The reason for his strength, he tells us, is because we know that if our earthly tent dwelling is destroyed, we have a house from God, a dwelling not made with hands, one eternal, in the heavens. What are earthly sufferings to one who looks upon his very bodily frame as a tent? in which he sojourns for a time and expects the laying of it aside to be merely a step toward entering into a mansion prepared for him by God himself. The apostle then contemplates the wearing away of his present body with patience. But we must observe that it is not exactly death that he longs for. He is burdened here and groans for relief from the burdens of this life that somehow mortality may be swallowed up by life. But he shrinks from death. He could wish to be alive to greet the Lord when he comes and so put on the habitation which is from heaven over this earthly tent, rather than be found naked on the coming of that glad day. Not that he expects to live until the return. He could only find it in his heart to wish for it. He is in complete uncertainty to the issue, and accordingly, adds, that is, of course, if, when we do put on, or when the putting on time comes, we will not be found naked. How instructive it is to observe that this great soldier of the cross, who was in death often and died daily, was shrinking with purely human feeling from the act of death. How magnificent must have been his courage, a courage rooted in nothing human, but in a divine faith and hope. For scarcely has this cry of human nature escaped from him before he proceeds, as if quietly reasoning with himself to declare that God has created us for the very purpose of swallowing up our mortality in life and given us even here his spirit as proof of his intention and his contemplation being withdrawn from self and cast on God, his shrinking from death disappears too. Being then of good courage always, he declares, And knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are away from home from the Lord. For it is by faith that we are walking, not by appearance. We are of good courage, I say, and am well pleased rather to go away from home from the body and go home to the Lord. So faith conquers the natural fear of death. As much as he fears it and he longs for the Lord more, he knows death is the quickest path to the Lord's side however painful or even unnatural it may be. He will joyfully take it when it is in God's timing to do so. Paul's whole heart is now before us. He is burdened in this life and longs to be with his Lord. He could wish that the Lord would hurry his coming, and so clothe him with immortality. But if this is not to be, then he earnestly desires, even in nakedness of soul, to be with him, and welcomes the fearful and unnatural portal of death as access to him. It is the model of the Christian's attitude toward life and death, and the life that lives beyond death. Let us seek to make it such for our bruised hearts today. Let us endeavor to understand from the apostles' uncovered soul what should be the attitude of our souls towards these great mysteries. First of all, we may learn that this life which we are living here cannot be a satisfactory living to a Christian. In this tent dwelling, says Paul, we groan, longing to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. We that are in the tent, he repeats, groan, being burdened with a view to the swallowing up of mortality in life. And so that we do not think this a state of mind that is special to Paul as one who labored more abundantly, Let us remind ourselves that he elsewhere represents it as characteristic of Christians. He broadly declares that they, quote, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, waiting for our adoption and the redemption of our body. This is indeed the whole drift of that great chapter, the seventh of Romans, in which the conflict of the Christian life. Oh, that eradicable strife between the implanted good and the natural evil within us is vividly portrayed, where it ends with a heart-rending cry, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me out of this body of death? It is a body of humiliation, as the apostle elsewhere calls it, a body of death, a body of sin, with which our spirits are now clothed. How can we fail to long for deliverance from this? One of the characteristics of the true Christian attitude is that we should be dissatisfied with the life which we are now living in the flesh. This is, of course, not inconsistent with the contentment, which is equally a mark of the Christian attitude. The contentment with his lot which the follower of Jesus is called upon to feel and to exhibit is, at the bottom of it all, contentment with Christ and his provision for us, with God and his providential direction of us so that whatever our Father in heaven sends us, we are content to receive. And whatever hardness he desires us to experience, we are glad for his sake to endure. Paul longed to be delivered from this body of death, but he was no stranger to a Christian's contentment. Years after this, he writes to the Philippians that he still cherished his desire to depart and be with Christ, Yet since living in the flesh meant more fruit from his work and was necessary for them, he was glad to forgo what for him was far better and abide with them all for their progress and their joy in faith. To be content to fill the place which God assigns us and to do the work which our Lord requires of us is quite consistent with the deepest dissatisfaction with our own Christian attainment and the most passionate longing to perfect our course. To speak of consistency here is indeed missing the point. The very ground of our dissatisfaction with self is that we are not what Christ would have us be and fall sadly behind filling the place for which God designs us. It is because we are content with him. We cannot be content with ourselves. And so long as in us, Who would do good? Evil is present. We also feel the delight in the law of God after the inward man. But we see a different law in our members bringing us into captivity under the law of sin which is in our members. Then we must cry, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me out of the body of this death? It is for us to ask our souls seriously this day whether this is the case with us. The human heart is very subtle, and it may be that some of us, who would fain reply with a hasty yes, may find cause, on consideration, to doubt whether our dissatisfaction is with self or with God, dissatisfaction with the dispensations of his providence, by which some messenger of sickness or sorrow or failure has visited us. In the bitterness of the moment, we may feel glad to leave this world of our misery or our shame not knowing that the long-suffering of God leads us to repentance. The truly Christian dissatisfaction is not such. It is with self and the limits of our Christian attainment. And it shows itself in an eager desire not so much to depart from the world as to depart from sin and to sit down in the heavenly places with Christ. We cannot help observing, as a second important truth, which we may learn from this unique record of Paul's inner experience that even to the Christian, death remains an undesired guest. Although the apostle groaned under the burden of his body of sin and therefore eagerly wished to pass out of this bodily life, yet he expresses a strong desire not to die. He longed rather for the coming of his Lord, that he might go to him without dying. He shrank from death. So it cannot be wrong for other Christians like him to shrink from death as well. We learn from this at once that this bodily life which we are now living in the flesh is an evil and every Christian soul will long to be delivered from it. A bodily life in itself considered is not an evil but a good and every rightly constituted man must cling instinctively to it. Death is unnatural and rightly terrifies its victims. Even more, death is evil as sin's offspring, as Christ's enemy. It is Satan's servant, and every Christian heart must stand aghast before it. It is only because our Lord and Savior lies now behind death that we can tolerate the thought of it. To which of us has this dread presence not come to snatch from our arms one we loved better than life? It has been our comfort and joy that we were surrendering him to the even more loving arms of our Savior. Since Christ has died, how much of the terror of death has departed. He has broken its sting, which is sin, by removing its strength, which was the curse of the broken law. Since he has lain in the tomb, how much of the gloom of the tomb has gone. But haven't we needed all the comfort we can get? The gloom of the tomb still overhangs death. It must, it has to do so. And terrible death remains terrible still. It bears on it the still dreadful legend which marks it as God's threatened punishment for sin and sinners. In its closest analysis, the horror which we have of death turns on the unnatural separation which it brings about between those lifelong companions, the soul and the body. And this leads us to the third great truth. It is plain that the state of the blessed dead between death and the resurrection when considered in itself alone is an undesirable state, for it is a state of unnatural separation between soul and body created by and the actual fruit of sin. We are quick to think of the body without its animating and informing mind, for even the bodies of our beloved are dear to us, But it is notable that Paul's concern seems to be less for the deserted body than for the naked soul. It is in its unnatural and sin-born nakedness at death which appalls him. And in this, unclothing of the soul, he finds the horror of death. In this sense, the state of the dead while awaiting the resurrection, as it is not their final state, is an imperfect state and therefore an undesirable state. In no other sense, however, for it is actually a state of entire happiness. The soul is with the Lord. It is a state of, so far as the soul is concerned, completed salvation, finished sanctification, entire holiness. The Roman invention of purgatory by which for the great majority of the saved spend a period of purification of longer or shorter duration and of greater or less suffering is interposed between death and the going home to the Lord is not only a baseless, but a wicked invention. It is at war with every statement of scripture in the premises, and with every dictate of the truly Christian consciousness alike. The same is true, of course, of all the fancies of the so-called ethical theology of our day, which agree in supposing the saved soul to carry remainders of sin with it into the other world. Because in its subtle and often only half-conscious antagonism to the supernatural, this school of thought finds difficulty in believing that God cleanses the soul at death from its remaining sins. It only looks for a self-cleansing by the soul itself in its own activity, which, of course, would be aided by the Spirit, but gradual and slow. It is not only the Westminster Confession, but also the Scripture, which teaches in every form of language, and with every circumstance of emphasis possible that the souls of the righteous are at their death made perfect in holiness and are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. The sole element of truth in the teachings just mentioned lies in the one fact that redemption is incomplete until the resurrection. It is the soul alone which is immediately transferred into holy bliss. The body lies moldering in the grave. And though even in death, in the beautiful language of the Westminster Larger Catechism, the bodies of Christ's members continue united to Christ and rest in their graves as in their beds till on the last day they are again united to their souls. Their redemption is not full until the resurrection. The salvation is complete, but it is as yet only an incomplete man that is saved, as the separation between soul and body is not natural to man as God made man's nature, but is the fruit of sin, and the penalty specifically threatened to sin. The work of redemption is not full until Christ conquers his last enemy, death. And he comes again in triumph, reuniting the souls and bodies of all his saints." It is not a pleasant thought that Christ's enemy, dreadful death, retains dominion over even this lower element in our nature after death and goes on until the Lord comes again in the epiphany of his glory. Do we wonder, in view of such a fact that the Old Testament saints, in the comparative twilight of Revelation, sitting, if not in darkness, yet not yet in the full illumination of the day of salvation, that they could scarcely speak of death without a shudder, or of the land beyond death except as a land of darkness and the shadow of death? Or are we surprised that in the fullness of the New Testament light, the apostles teach us to long for Christ's coming than for death? It was important in the period of preparation that men's minds should not escape from the conception of death as the penalty of sin. And only when life and immortality were ready to be brought fully to light was it safe to make them fully understand the bliss that lay behind death. And now, when preparation has passed into the glorious reality of a completed sacrifice for sin, it is equally important that we should keep in mind that we do not obtain our entire salvation, that all the terrible harvest which springs from sin is not fully garnered by any one of us until our enraptured eyes behold him who is the redeemer from sin, descending from heaven in like manner as he went into heaven. We are still reaping the fruit of our sin even after we go away from the body and go home to the Lord. Or better, just because in order to go home to the Lord, we must go away from the body. Let us praise God that he saves the soul at once and completely, and naked as it may be, takes it home to himself and grants it the continual fruit of his favor, while the soul waits in his sheltering arms for the perfecting of its old companion, the body. How great a mercy that our Lord enables us to know that our dead are perfectly holy and happy at once and that it is only the unsensing body that awaits in the disgrace of the tomb the greatest day, when he will come to be glorified with all his saints. But it is equally important to keep ourselves reminded that they gravely err who speak with little respect for the body, for it has also in its measure between a habitation of the Spirit and is also joined to the Lord, They refer to the soul as released from a prison when it is freed from what they are pleased to term the clog of clay. We cannot emphasize too strongly that human souls were not created to exist apart from matter, so far from needing to be separated from their bodies for their completed freedom. They are incomplete and naked things away from their dwelling houses of clay. It is the glory of Christianity to provide a salvation adequate to the whole man. And though it is only gradually realized, and the soul is taken to bliss long before the renewed and glorified body is prepared for it, yet it is accomplished in the end. The complete man stands before his God, justified, sanctified, glorified. The saints of God have foretastes of their glory. Even in this world, they are received into the number of his sons and are made temples of the Holy Ghost. When their period of service below is accomplished, then their spirits are cleansed from remainders of sin and received into the presence of God. But the day that marks the beginning of their heavenly perfection, of their completed bliss, is not the day in which they believed, although in that act their whole salvation occurred. And it is not in the day in which they depart to be with Christ, although in that they enter into glory, but it is to be the day of Christ's glorious coming and of the resurrection of the saints. And this is the reason for the emphasis on the day of judgment in the Bible. It is the day in which the inheritance, something incorruptible and undefiled and that never fades away, reserved in heaven for Christ's people, will be fully revealed. It is time that we emphasized another blessed truth brought to us by this passage. This truth underlies it as one of its foundations. And that is that this in-between state of the blessed dead, although imperfect when compared with our final state, when the whole man will partake of the divine glory, is actually unspeakably blissful and to be infinitely desired and longed for by every Christian soul. We remember that Paul, with a clear sense of all the unnaturalness of a separation of the soul from the body, yet wished rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. He declared to depart and be with Christ, to be far better. Just as soon as he remembered that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, he desired to go away from the body that he might go home to the Lord. Perhaps the best insight of the infinite bliss of the saved soul in heaven is shown by the fact that it is so great as to make it desirable, even at the expense of so unnatural a mutilation. Paul does not conceal from his readers that he would rather that the coming of Christ should be quick so that the conquest of death, the last enemy, might be completed. Then he would be glorified soul and body without death. But presence with the Lord was so yearned for that even if Christ did not come back, he was pleased to depart from the body itself and go to the Lord. It is good to let our hearts dwell on this revelation of bliss. What comfort it brings us for those who have died in the Lord, and perhaps it may entice our own hearts to long, to lay aside our body of sin and enter into the inheritance of the saints beyond the grave. Let us note the superiority of their state to ours now. The evil of our present life is positive evil. Anything called an evil in the soul life in heaven is negative only, by which to say that the holiness and bliss of the disembodied soul in heaven is perfect in its way. It has only not yet been made a sharer in so complete a glorification of human nature as it is destined for it. While on the other hand, in this life, not only do we lag behind the positive life ahead there and live on a lower plane, but there is a weight of positive evil upon us. A law of sin reigning in our members. Ah, if we could only catch a glimpse of what perfect holiness really is. Oh, how we would long to be separated from this body of sin and enter into the next life at any cost. We note that the separation of soul and body is in itself an unnatural thing. The separation of our redeemed and sanctifying soul from this body of humiliation in which we now live is a thing to be greatly desired. For it is a body of sin. The bliss of the intermediate state is infinitely more desirable than anything that can come to us on earth. It is only less desirable than the completed redemption which is yet to come. And it is to be desired like the storm-tossed sailor desires the safe haven, which his vessel has long fought to win through the tossing waves and stormy winds. It is the end of the journey when our friends come out to meet us. It is within the Father's house where the greeting rings, Bring out the best robe! Put it on him! Should the prodigal be impatient for the coming of the robe? The bliss of the holy, happy dwelling with the Lord is such that even were there nothing beyond, we would joyfully seek it. And it is the promise and the certainty of a grander future. But the apostle throws his emphasis on the chief joy of the in-between state. Christ is there. To go away from the body is to go home to the Lord. No wonder he prefers nakedness of soul with Christ to personal completeness away from Christ. And no wonder since his day, deathbeds have been peaceful, and many a soul has gone out, brightening the face of even the deserted body with its smile of joy as it hears the words of its Savior Today you will be with me in paradise. No wonder a Christian song is vocal with the sigh, O mother, dear Jerusalem, when will I come to you? When will my sorrows have an end? Thy joys, when will I see? O happy harbor of God's saints, O sweet and pleasant soil. In you no sorrows can be found, no grief, no care, no toil. Jerusalem the city is of God our King alone. The Lamb of God, the light thereof, sits there upon his throne. Ah, God, that I Jerusalem with speed may go and see. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, would God I were in thee. Don't we share those yearnings? May God grant that in his own good time, each of us may be permitted to join the innumerable throng of praising saints around his throne. Do we dare confront the possibility that it may not be so? The apostle seems to confront it, for on reaching this point in his statement, he makes a sudden and strange transition. He had reached the climax we are of good courage and are joyful to go away from the body and go home to the Lord. Here he might be expected to pause, but he continues, and the words which he adds demand our serious attention. Consequently, we must make it our aim, whether at home or away from home, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all be made innocent before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether it is good or good. Or bad, So he turns from the glories of his inheritance in Christ in heaven to the duties which he owes him on earth, from the consideration of what he may gain to the danger of losing it all, from the bliss of dwelling with Christ to the dread of standing before his judgment seat. His purpose is obvious, and the addition of these solemn words ceases to be strange. It is not enough to contemplate the glories of heaven. We must seek to make those glories ours. It is given to who justly deserves it. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and receive according to the deeds done in the body, whether they are good or bad. And note the finality of this judgment. The apostle plainly does not contemplate the possibility of any reversal or of any change. The verdict upon what is done here is the irreversible doom of all the future. And therefore, it is our duty to be well-pleasing to him. O the troops upon troops that have laid aside the trials and labors of earth, faithful to the Lord and entered into their rest with him. Death's wings beat about us day and night. Their wind is on our faces now. While our farewell to them on this side of the separating gulf was sounding in their ears, the glad hail of their Lord was welcoming them there. May God grant to each of us to follow them. May he give us his Holy Spirit to sanctify us wholly. And may he enable us, when we close our eyes for our long sleep, to open them at once. Not in terrified pain and torment, but in the soft, sweet light. Paradise forever safe in the arms of Jesus.
1: As we talk about death and, and what happens after death, there's this one part where he goes, one of the characteristics of a Christian's attitude is dissatisfaction with the feeling of this life. But then he immediately goes on and says, of course, that has nothing to do with Christian contentment. And it's kind of funny because it is true. The Bible almost seems to call us to two different feelings where you should be looking forward for this life to be over and be a little bit dissatisfied with the life you have because you know a better one is coming, and you know that you are imperfect, but you will be made perfect at some point. At the same time, you are to be a Christian and keep your contentment. You're not to complain and grumble about the things that are bothering you on the outside, and really the difference seems to be is I'm displeased with my sinful heart, but I'm not bothered to be in this sinful world because I know that it's what I deserve, and I know a better one is coming, and that really made me thought about how I think most of us live it in reverse, where we don't really complain about who we are. I think I'm not a bad person, but boy, I have a lot of bad circumstances, and he's flipping the whole script and say no 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 you need to be complaining about your sinful heart if anything and repenting of that but you need to be content in the circumstances that you're in <laughs>
2: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Michael Fries. Michael Fries is the Baptist Church planting missionary of Southeast Cambodia and a huge fan of B.B. Warfield's book, Inspiration and Authority of the Bible. He's married to Michelle and they have four teens at home.
1: This week we put out another episode of Revive Thoughts Deep Dive, a little preview episode, and of course if you are a premium team member, you can listen to the full over two hours of content as we walked through the first crusade. We highly recommend you go listen to it. Listen to the preview. Let us know what you think. And we do recommend getting on Patreon, not only because it gives you access to content like that and behind-the-mic episodes and a bunch of other things and a ad-free feed, so you no longer have to listen to advertisements when you listen to the episodes, but also... Uh, It's a really good way to support us and what we're doing. We have a lot of content and shows and things we are trying to bring you in. The more that you are able to support us, the more that we are able to do. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. I hope you enjoyed that podcast, and if you did, I'd like to also invite you over to the Finding Holy Podcast, where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between things that really matter in issues of faith and your everyday holy life. You'll even get to hear about the laundry routines. Go to aahales.com podcast or listen to the Finding Holy Podcast wherever you choose to listen to your shows.